what's what's really great about this is, you know, you're you're probably the first person we've ever had in the aggressive life of all the episodes who's actually killed somebody, <laughs> and and you're the person on the, on the aggressive life who's quoted more Bible verses than anybody else. You know, it's at that 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 juxtaposition is really beautiful. This isn't like a, a Bible podcast. I'm obviously I'm a pastor. It's my thing by day, and you know it's a, the, the topic of faith is here. But we we don't come with this like, hey, let's get Bible content out. But I think that's just a beautiful thing about who you are, David, and 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 what's going to hit people like, wait, 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 a guy who's got guns, he's allowing somebody to put a gun to his head, he's off. And and he and he he just quotes Bible verses like left and right, and he 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 goes to God and adds that 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 beautiful mashup doesn't fit the narrative that anybody understands. It's beautiful. <laughs> Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, at the sound of gunfire, everyone scatters. And then there's David Eubank, not to be confused with Bob Eubanks, not the same person for those of us who are older and ever watched the newlywed game. Anyway, I digress. A man that runs right into the fight. He offers hope to the most desperate. In 1997, in response to the atrocities of war happening in Burma, David picked up his life and he went there. He aggressively went there where people were trying to get away from. And the Free Burma Rangers were born. For 25-plus years, the Free Burma Rangers have grown into an internationally recognized humanitarian service movement focused on aiding oppressed ethnic minorities of all races and religions in the conflict zones of Burma, Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, and Sudan. The Free Burma Rangers does everything from providing medical care to the injured, distributing food and supplies to the needy, and helping refugees of war find homes. And what started as a family mission with Dave and his wife, Karen, and their three kids, they were the original Rangers, has grown into a movement. FBR has trained more than 4,500 recruits, carried out some 800 missions, delivered medical care to more than 500,000 people, and fed more than 1.5 million people. Everyone wants to make the world a better place. Everyone wants to. But Dave and the Rangers, they're actually doing it. In 2020, his incredible life was a feature-length documentary called Free Burma Rangers. He's got a high capacity for bravery and offering hope. Welcome to the aggressive life all the way from Thailand, David Eubank. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Brian. Man, you're welcome. I've got to think that by now, interviews like this have got to get got to be getting old, right? Because I would think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of were operating way under the radar and you popped above the radar. And I think you're getting more requests like this, or do you still feel like you are the kingdom of God's best kept secret? <laughs> well, you know, right before this started, I thought, oh man, I'm not very good at interviews. I'd rather run around the jungle. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like that sometimes about going to church, like, oh man, I kind of want to go right now. But I'm always grateful when I go to church. I'm always grateful during an interview because I have an opportunity. First, you know, one thing that Jesus told his disciples, don't worry about what to say, you know, don't prepare beforehand. The Holy Spirit will tell you. And so whenever I pray and just say, God, help me, I always go through an interview going, man, God's in this. So I have an opportunity to say, we serve a living God 
who did send his son indeed and is still with us and helps us do things we can't do alone. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity. Well, we're thankful for you taking advantage of this opportunity, David. It's good stuff. Give us a little bit of sense of your your background in the military that ties into this. Well, you know, before that, I grew up as a missionary kid in Thailand. My parents came over in 1960, or beginning of 61. I was nine months old when they brought me over, and then I grew up here. My parents are still here. My dad's 92. My mom will be 90 in three days. Wow. And they're still here. I went to school here through high school, then I got an Army ROTC scholarship and went to Texas A&M where I was commissioned as a lieutenant. And then I was in the infantry down in Panama and a scout platoon leader. And then I tried out for the Rangers and I was in the second Ranger Battalion. And then after that, I went for Special Forces or the Green Berets and I was in the first Special Forces group. Altogether, just a little under 10 years. And then... I prayed, you know, do I take the next step to me that was going to another special forces unit called Special Operations Forces Delta, or some people call it Delta Force. You have to try out for that again. I'm going to do that, or am I going to get out and see what? And I prayed, and there's a lot of things that happened, mostly, mostly my own failures that made me rededicate my life to Jesus. And then I asked God what to do, and I didn't hear anything, but I just felt this impression I could stay in the army and put God first, my men second and me last, and God would bless and use me. Or I could get out and see what happened. Hmm. It was like you had a choice. And I know I had a choice. I thought, whoa, that's not easy. But I just thought, well, I don't know what it is out of the army. I don't, it sounds like more adventure. So I got out. And I think I also had this very naive and soon to be proven wrong concept that if I served God full time, I'd be less sinful and a better person. No. I just found out I was worse than I thought I was, but I got out and met my wife in the middle of that whole thing, uh, Karen, and we were invited to help the Wa people of Burma. This is back in 1993, and we got married and went to Burma and then have been working in Burma since then, in and out. And then, you know, more recently invited to help with the ISIS conflict in Syria and Iraq. When you grew up as a missionary kid, it seems like... Missionary kids go one of two ways. They're, they're kind of a turbocharged form of preacher's kids. You know, you either right. all in, all out for God, or you're just like so done with God and the whole the whole mindset. Where were you on that on that spectrum when you were 18? Well, I didn't, you know, when I was five years old, I remember I was in Thailand out in the country. And I remember looking up the sky thinking one day I'll be a soldier and then I'll be a missionary. And I, I thought that was from God. But, you know, I don't know. My dad's my, my big hero, and he was a soldier, fought in the Korean War, and then he's a missionary. So is that, you know, replicating what I think is right from my dad? I don't know. But when I went off to join the military, I still wasn't sure what I would do. But I really thought may, I might just stay in the military. But I was never sad to be a missionary kid. It was awesome. I mean, I, I grew up with monkeys and horses and a baby bear and two baby leopards. And we lived, you know, my dad's a tough guy. And he, he took me hunting since I was small. And there was no rules out here. You just ran amok. I rode to, I rode to school on my horse when I, I was in boarding school at first because there's no school in the jungle. But when I, when I finally, our parents moved up north to Chiang Mai where there was a, a, a proper school and we had a home near it. I rode my horse to school. That's just cool. And then sometimes I went with my 22 rifle. Sometimes I took my 22 rifle loaded <laughs> into class. 
God bless America. Bag. Yeah, and the teacher goes, Dave, is that a gun? I said, yeah. Is it loaded? Well, there's not one in the, not one in the chamber, but yeah, I, I mean, I got one ready. And she goes, Dave, that's not allowed here. I said, okay, I'll take it back. That's all that happened. That's all that happened. <laughs> and um, so when you grow up like that, and we, we just didn't, don't shoot each other. And, um, and then you grow up, I grew up doing stupid things. I did have a BB gun, which I did shoot at people with, which is bad, <laughs> but I would ride my horse and terrorize other kids. And I, I didn't shoot them. I shot near them and scared them and then went home, thought nothing of it until I hear a missionary dad come over, the father of those kids and ask where I was. My dad calls me down. The other missionary tells a story how he terrorizes kids with his BB gun. And I got punished pretty bad. And then I asked for forgiveness. Both my dad and the other missionary forgave me. And I went out playing with his kids again. And so everything, you know, what was really great about that. It's like small town America. Everybody knows you, you get away with nothing and everybody cares about you. And so you have to be a real evil criminal to get in big trouble. Other, cause, and any parent could punish you. Yeah. I was grateful to be a missionary kid. I loved it. Well, I, hearing what you, the kind of missionary existence you had, which I've heard that from some other friends of mine as well, that it's not just translating scriptures, that you actually have a much more virile, wild existence because America is so locked down and in love with seatbelts and helmets and laws and insurance policies and and lawsuits and, and all these things that there is a level of wildness that you can get when you're outside of the safety bubble called modern United States. And it sounds like that sort of X factor of danger of excitement actually not just prepared you for the military, but actually prepared you for the kingdom of God. Right. You know, out here, it's kind of this neat combination of self-responsibility for each person's actions, including accidents, but community coming to help each other when you really have a need. In the missionary community, they really believe in Jesus. So we'd have prayer meetings. There weren't that many missionaries where we were before. I mean, there were are more now in Thailand, but there weren't that many then. So my dad had a prayer meeting every Tuesday night and invited all the Christians around. And we had Roman Catholic priests, Jesuit priests. We had a, a nun. We had a Pentecostal. We had a Presbyterian. We had Baptists. We had everybody all in one room with different ideas what God was about. But they knew he was God, and they knew he sent Jesus. And it was an, just a great experience. And, you know, kind of a fast forward when I finally went to seminary after the military, my first day in class, my Christian anthropology professor, he said, we all see reality with a small r. Only God sees with a capital R. So those things that you see, you may have to live or die for, but you can't tell someone so far away from him, from you, to, that you see, he sees the same thing you see, because you don't. We all have different perspectives of truth, but you know truth, and you know enough to live your life. And I thought, wow, that's, and that's how I kind of grew up. It's not that there's relative truth, but it's that none of us know all the truth, but you do know enough to do the right thing right now. Yeah, that's a great word. So when you decide to I mean, you didn't just have this vision to all of a sudden start a nonprofit that would have a movie made about you. When I hear your story and I've listened to a bunch of stuff, I've heard your some of your you speak, I've seen clips. It just seems like you have been taking one aggressive step after another. There hasn't been some huge master master plan that you've been following. It's like, hey, let's just take the next step. Let's just keep pushing. 
and you come to where you are right now. Is that accurate, David? Yes, sir. Exactly accurate. And I've always been very aggressive. But, you know, aggression with not submitted to Jesus can be an ugly thing. Yes. And it certainly was many times in my life. But every time that I can offer that to God, then it's it. there's love behind it. You know, when you're aggressive the wrong way, you're going to get humbled. And I've been humbled many times by my own sin and grateful for God's forgiveness and new chances. And, and then having to say sorry to a lot of people. And I'm glad they forgave me. But um, I had no, we had no plan. It was just one step at a time. And you kind of referenced it in the beginning of our conversation about, you know, being kind of out of the, out of the news and out of any limelight for years and suddenly more news. Well, that was on purpose, not because I'm humble, because I'm not. I really want to be humble, but I'm not very humble. It, we were quiet about what we did and careful in our reporting to keep our names out initially because we're working across international borders extra-legally, meaning we're crossing the border to another country that needs help without visa, passport, any of those things. The governments that we're passing through know what we're doing, and thank God they let us do it, but they don't want to be embarrassed. And we need to follow man's laws right up to the point they violate God's laws. And then you've really got to make a decision. doesn't mean you automatically violate man's laws, but God, did you ask me to do this? Is there any other way to do this? But as the years went by, more and more information came out. And I began to think, you know, we send out a lot of reports. We talk a lot, but we're just kind of hiding back here. Also, as we became more and more known, I felt like a buffalo that's got its head in the bushes hiding, but its bottom is in the trail and it thinks it's invisible. And so <laughs> it's like, right. and then as we prayed about it, I really felt like one of the blind men that Jesus healed or one of the lepers that Jesus healed that came back to say, thank you. I just wanted to say, thank you, God. This is what we've seen you do. And I wanted that to be a testimony to people who helped us and to anybody who cared. And I wanted to speak on behalf of the ethnics. This, this welled up me as a, as gratitude. I just wanted to share this. So as I prayed to God about it, my wife and I are praying the exact same time and all my ethnic leadership, uh, all was prayed and we all had the same answer in different ways. And mine came, don't hide your light under a bushel. I knew that was from God. And I said, God, I can't stand the scrutiny. I'm afraid to expose it. Not just cause I might get kicked out of these countries and not able to work, but I can't stand real scrutiny. People knew what I really think sometimes, what I've done sometimes, I'm not good enough. And then I, it just came to me, no, I'm not good enough. But that's not the point. I'm pointing to Jesus and saying only he's good enough. And he'll still take us as weak as we are, as we obey him, he'll do something good with us in spite of our sin. And so that, okay, God, this is really going to suck because if people know the real me, I'm not much of a hero. But I thought, okay, that's just pride. And that's just silliness because, of course, I'm going to point to Jesus. When would you say, describe for me the first week when the Free Burma Rangers was founded? What? Well, how did this whole thing start? What did you see? What took place? When was that? That was 1997. So we've been going in, in and out of Burma since 1993 to 1997. But 1997, I just, I'd come back from Burma into Thailand, which neighbors, which borders Burma. Burma's also, also called Myanmar. But I'd come back from Burma or Myanmar into Thailand 1997, and a huge offensive started, the biggest offensive pretty much since World War II inside Burma. Now, Burma's a 72-year-long war, 72 years of fighting to this day. It's the longest-running war in the world. And 
that Burma's dictators attacking their own people. So 1987 is a huge offensive. I respond to it. I, I pick, it happens fast. And so I throw four backpacks full of medical supplies in my pickup truck. My wife is somewhere else. She's in Thailand. She's not with me at this moment. And I drive. We don't have any kids yet. I drive to the border and stop the truck, and I see 10,000 people coming down there, crossing the border, just coming on this trail. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I think, okay, I'll just carry all four backpacks of medicine, and I'm not, I'm not even a medic, but I know something. I'll do something. And all of a sudden, this guy steps out of the jungle, and, and he's got camouflage fatigues, a hand grenade on his harness. He's an Asian guy. He's an ethnic Karen from Burma. M16 rifle in his hand, big, right, bright red ruby earring, mouth full of betel nut, flashing eyes, and he says in English, my name is Ilya, which means Elijah. My name is Ilya. I'm a medic. Can I help you? And I thought, it's like a pirate angel. You know, later on, I saw Pirates of the Caribbean, kind of like Johnny Depp, Captain Sparrow. Just like that kind of no, guy. No, not like Johnny Depp. No one's like Johnny Depp. No one's that weird. Oh, with, without the weirdness. Okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, he said, can I help you? I'm a medic. Okay. And, and so we started working together right then. It was like over a thousand people, a thousand casualties alone. And he's treating, I'm just walking around holding IV bags. He's just treating one person for a week, treats all these people. At the end of the week, a guy is carrying his leg blown off and Ilya finishes up the amputation or whatever, but we can't do more than that there. So I'm going to take him deeper into Thailand to a provincial hospital. And as I'm we're putting him in the truck, because he'd been on foot up to this point, Ilya goes, well, I have to go back and find my wife and my son. Maybe next week I'll be dead. And you can hear the shooting in the distance in the Burma side. Boom, 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 boom. I said, you have a wife and a son? And you've been with me for a week? And then he took off. And I didn't see him for a year. And I heard he'd been killed. Well, I, I took this guy to the hospital. He lived. The guy had no leg. And we kept going, you know, following the fighting. But I didn't see Ilya for a year. When I finally saw him, he had a wife and a son and another baby on the way. And I said, why did you stay with me for a week during heavy fighting when you didn't know where your family was? I mean, it would drive me crazy. He said, my wife and kids were nowhere near me when this fighting started. I helped people escape. I had trusted friends taking my family. And I was about to go try to find them when I saw you. And we had no medicine. You had medicine, but you weren't a medic. I was a medic with no medicine. God brought us together. I had to trust God he'd take care of my family. You know, you can't just run around trying to do everything. You just do the thing that God puts in front of you and trust him for the other. I was like, oh, my gosh, who is this guy? And that's how the Free Burma Ranger started. So he and I started working together, and then others joined us one by one. I had an atheist or agnostic, Kareni, his name is Monkey, who challenged God's existence. Now he's one of our head pastors. I had a murderer join us, and he got in trouble with the jail, got released, and then nobody wanted him. And he saw us, and he said, I'm the worst person. Can I join you? I said, yeah, man, we have no standards except love. You want to go? Go. Later on, he recommitted his life to the Lord and studied the Bible, got married, has kids. Amazing story. And then another guy who was a spirit worshiper, and as he was going along, Jesus came to him in a vision, and he cut off his spirit rings and became a follower of Jesus. So the people we had when we first started were not like beautiful people, but they were people who were willing to risk their lives to help others. They are cream the crop, beautiful people. That's that's why there's a power. You you start something with churchy moralistic people, you get churchy moralism. You start 
with the kind of folks that you have, you get something different. I, I know a lot of us are listening to that going, wait, wait, wait what, what, what? You're, you're amputating a guy's leg. You and this other guy amputate. You you drop these these things inside of a five minute span. That I know for a lot of our listeners, at least people who would opt into a podcast called The Aggressive Life, we would say, "Oh my gosh, I would love that. Oh, that would be great." It's it's kind of like we're living too civilized of lives, and yet we make these choices to stay very very safe where we are. And um, I think we sometimes look at people like you think, oh, man, I, I need some of that in my life. And yet here we are. we got to fasten our seatbelt and we go 100 yards in the parking lot. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, right now there's people who, who, who are pissed off at me that I'm even mentioning there might be okay for you not to wear a seatbelt sometimes. You know, it's, it's just a, it's a different thing. And I, I wonder if you see that or if you see things differently as – in, in your context versus the normal civilized context of America? First, I want to say I'm certainly probably wrong about a lot of things that I think that I like to do. I'm not about moral things, but things like yeah. seatbelts. But I really prefer personal freedom. And I prefer the ability to, for people to make their own choices about those kind of things rather than being dictated. For example, when my dad was a kid, there was no thing as a driver's license. You just drove your car. And later on, there was no seatbelts. They did not exist. So suddenly when you say you have to have a license, you have to have a seatbelt, and then if you don't, you're a criminal. Well, years before, you couldn't be a criminal for that. Yeah. And so I think whatever kind of laws we make, um, and they can be debated what's a good law, what's a bad law, what I hope people remember is the laws are made for people, not the other way around. And, and, and real justice comes with love and wisdom not one size fits all. And so what I really like about being in, in somewhere like Burma or actually any conflict area, if you're in Iraq or Syria and things are going bad, they're not going to worry about you doing this or that or this. They're going to worry about it. You care about them. Do you love them? Are you telling the truth? Are you doing your best to help? How you do it's up to you. You want to put 40 people in your truck? You put 40 people in your truck. Do it. Yeah. But the best thing to me about America, the number one best thing is the church. The believers all over America, different kinds, that try to listen to God. That is the most wonderful thing about our country. And then the second best thing to me is the natural beauty and the diversity of the country. Beautiful. I love it. And then only way down the line is the democracy, because a democracy without God, without love, is just two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Mm-hmm. A democracy won't work without, and I believe, without love in the middle. And love won't last unless God is there, because God is love. And so to me, you know, I'm so grateful for you and your podcast, and I pray for everyone with a mission in America, people like you, and I am so grateful for you and your ministry and for others that are in America speaking the truth to our Americans, because it's the only way out, and it's the only way, it's the way we get strong. How often are you in America right now, David? Well, I used to not go very often, but my two girls just started college, and so now I go every year. And I go for a couple months every year. So we go to the States for a couple months. We rodeo in Wyoming, in, in Washington State. We go up to Alaska a little bit. And then we come back down to Texas. And, and then usually we have friends, you know, coast to coast. So we usually go coast to coast, speaking at churches. Or about every year I'll go to D.C. and speak and testify what's happening in Burma or Iraq or Syria or places we've been to Congress, to friends in Congress. And most of whom, most of my friends there are believers, and I'm really grateful for them. 
So we become. If you're in Wyoming, yeah. Alaska, and Texas, you're not in the kind of America that a lot of us are in. Those are pretty wide open spaces, which are amazing. Because I'm always amazed when I do a mission trip, which I've done my share all over the place, two things always happen. First thing that happens is a bunch of people who sign up cancel because there's always <laughs> something there's always something happen happening in the country that someone says on CNN or the state department says travel advisory to whatever always is in South Africa and in India Nicaragua always is some oh you can't I can't you know so that's the first thing that happens the second thing that always happens is you're doing something in that country that you go oh my gosh I can't believe I'm doing this here we're like four-wheeling in the back of a little Toyota pickup truck headed to the base of a volcano to climb it. And there's 30 of you in the back of the bed sitting on paint buckets and everybody is holding each other's elbows lock-armed because you're going to fall out of the truck as you go 30 miles an hour down a pocked overland trail. You know, <laughs> you just go, what exactly. is happening here? Like in America, you get pulled over. You can't have it, one person in the bed. You don't think they got a helmet and a seatbelt on, but my gosh, here you got 30 people literally bouncing around and hanging over the side. And, and it's, it was exhilarating. So I think that's part of what people see when they see your, your, your mission. They see you fully alive. They see, uh, Gosh, I, I think they they see something that, that that we're losing our lives, and we obviously love your mission, helping people in Burma, blessing people who are hurting, being the hands and feet of Jesus. But I also think that we've got a little bit of envy that our life is is as dull as it is. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, I love your description, and yeah, you feel alive. You got to figure it out, and I, I love figuring it out. Yeah, I love the I love the freedom, and I think. I think that in America, it's a little harder to attain sometimes. I mean, maybe you have to go on vacation to do it or on a mission trip or go to Alaska, man. Go to Alaska yeah. and get out in the middle of nowhere and it's like, uh-oh. But I, I think that God knows what we each of us need. And if we put our lives before him and up on his altar, he'll give it to us. Because there's, you know, there's, there's pros and cons about every choice you make. There's certain things you miss. Like my kids who grew up in the jungle— they can climb about anything, ride anything. They can hunt, fish, spear. They can do all that. But they didn't get to play on a basketball team. You know, they didn't get to play Little League Baseball, which is fun as anything. And so you can't do everything. But I'm, I know that God knows me better than I know myself because I, I could have stayed in the Army. And there have been a lot of benefits to that. But I'm much happier to be doing what I'm doing. And I was thinking about, you know, our conversation about, about safety and all that. Of course, I don't want to get hurt. No one wants to get hurt. But to me, I think I don't want to be led by comfort or fear or pride. We, those are three things in our lives that just are terrible leaders. Yeah. And if you're led by the opportunity God gives you, it's going to be a risk. Everything's a risk. You date a girl, it's a risk. You get married, there's a risk. A mom has a child, that's a risk. That's just how the world is. And you can't avoid it if you want anything at all. And so... Don't be led by comfort, fear, or pride. And that's, you know, our, our family motto. And the, and the Freedom Rangers, not motto, but maybe byword. And, and it's a good way we check our motives. Is this pride? Is it fear? Is it comfort? And then, Jesus, do you really want me to do this? Because it's scary as anything. Yeah, do it. Go. I'm with you. And then you go. And then it, it feels like even if you failed, 
this is part of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's a great word. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1 has got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. Take us mentally, David, on one of your missions. Um, what do you do? How do you identify needs? What are the roadblocks? Just give us some, just give us some flavor. Cause I think we're still, I think people are really impressed with you and we're impressed with the ideas, but what's the, what's the culture in your day-to-day mission? Give us an example if you wouldn't mind. Well, in Burma, just recently, you know, in Burma, a lot of what we do is on foot in the mountains because the dictators control most of the roads in most of the areas. So we're on foot with 3.30 in the morning. My kids, my two girls, Sahel and Suzanne and Pete, my son, will go out to the horses and mules. We have 19 of them and saddle them up and catch them. It takes like an hour and a half to catch all of them, even though you got them around in a little clearing. Put all the saddlebags on them. Meanwhile, the ethics are up cooking. And then you're eating at around 4.30. And then you're moving at night, first with lights across the rice fields. And you turn them off because you're about to go in the deep jungle, which is harder to see, but the Burma Army's close. I'm just giving you an example of one mission we just did. And then you've got to cross a, a, one of the few roads. It's just basically a logging road, four-wheel drive, but the Burma Army uses it between their camps that bisects an ethnic area. You've got to cross that road. So as you get close to it, the ethnic resistance that's been fighting the Burma Army, they're clearing landmines. They're clearing their own mines that protect them, and they're clearing the Burma Army mines. You cross this little road quiet, no lights, you know, horses tripping and stepping and stumbling, people falling, trying to be quiet, all get across the road. Landmines are put back in place by the resistance. You know, one guy, one of the resistance has one leg and the other is a bamboo, a prosthesis that he's going just as fast as you with. He's done it for 20 years, big old smile on his face. And then you're, you're through the jungle. The sun's coming up. It's starting to get warm. This is the tropics. Getting hot, you come to a village that's been burned, you take photos of it, you find that the, the people have fled to a, another valley. You go to that valley, you go with them, you set up a little medical clinic under the trees, a dental one over here, talk with the leaders, encourage them, say, hey, we'll do a kids program tomorrow. And there's like a big outdoor Sunday school to encourage the kids and you find out what their needs are. You're ready to for more supplies. You do that for a couple of days and go to the next place. And in this last mission, we went from there up to another area we'd never been to before. It actually had roads. And there were 
resistance had pushed the Burma army back a bit, and we could actually use a road. For the first time in my life in Burma, for 29 years, I didn't use roads. And then the Burma army counterattacked. And they counterattacked, interestingly enough to me, with Russian MiGs, because the Russians support the Burma dictators, Russian MiGs, Russian Yak fighters, and hind attack helicopters, as well as armored vehicles, which I'd never faced in Burma. And they came at us, and next thing you know, it's an onslaught. And we're losing about a kilometer or about you know, a little over half a mile a day of ground. And we're with – we divide our team into three groups at that point. My family's back with the displaced people. In this area, there was 20,000 people in hiding in the jungle. My family's back with them doing programs and suddenly helping them flee because the onslaught is coming. And that's my family and a few of the rangers and medics, some of the women. And then the middle group is the, is the relay group bringing casualties back from there to a casualty collection point. And the very front line, which is local like Minutemen, basically, or militia trying to hold off the Burma Army and save their farms. I'm with them with my top medics and some of my videographers, which is how we film all this stuff, because we always want to put a light on what's happening and tell the story. And I'm with them at the front line, and we're just getting hammered. Most of the time in Burma, the Burma army shoots at you, you get everybody out, you run away over the mountains, and they can't find you anymore. But this way, we were in this huge plain with roads and normal towns, and you couldn't get away. And the Burma army just coming and coming, and guys are dying every day. I lost four of my team there. I've been in lots of firefights in Iraq and, and, and in Syria. But in Burma, we usually can avoid them. But this time, we couldn't. And as we're helping people flee, airplanes came at us. And, you know, I'm a soldier probably by birth. I don't know. I just how I am. And I've never gotten tired of the conflict ever. In the Battle of Mosul, they were fighting every day we were in it. I was wounded four times. And one of my team was killed and four others wounded. I never really got tired of it. I thought, no, I'm made for this. I just try and do it again. But this particular day, which is about two weeks ago now, in Kareni State, we were just, this is like 20 days into the onslaught people dying every day. I'm handling these wounded and dead kids and bombing, bombing us with, from airplanes every day and strafing us with gunships. And you couldn't do anything to stop it. You know, the resistance had muskets, homemade 22s, break open shotguns, and just a handful of M16s. It was just unbelievable. So as we're going back, one day I saw... And, and David, are you, are you armed? Are you personally armed during all this time? This particular time I was. Okay. Most of the missions I've done, I haven't been armed, not because I'm a pacifist. I'm not. Just not enough guns available, and I don't really need one if the soldiers need one. But I did have a pistol on, and I used it once. I used it once this last mission when the Burma Army fired up the resistance that I was behind. We're providing medical care for them and civilians that were fleeing. They shot the command. The commander got wounded by a mortar and then stepped on a Burma Army landmine, blew his leg off, and he's laying there in this ditch, and the Burma Army has been pinned down with a machine gun. They're close. They're 40 yards away. And any of his soldiers that tried to rescue him would get shot by the machine gun. Well, the Burma Army didn't see me, and I was there. And I just pulled that pistol out, and I put rounds where I thought I couldn't quite clearly see them. I could see where they were shooting from, but I, it was bushes. I just shot into the bushes where they were, and they stopped shooting. I doubt I hit them, but maybe I did. I don't know. I just felt, I prayed and thought, I got to stop these guys or try. And then when I fired at them, the machine gun stopped. Me and the soldiers ran and drugged this guy back. And then Joseph, my medic, saved his life. He had no leg. He had his entire right buttocks missing. He had a huge gap in his lower back. And he would have been dead, but Joseph saved him. We carried him out, out of that. I'm running down the road. I've got a pistol. 
and a couple of my guys have rifles. One guy behind me is a single shot shotgun. And we're trying to just look for wounded. We're grabbing old people that have been left behind, forgotten in homes and carrying them out. Burma Army's coming. The homes are burning. Behind me is Burma Army. All of a sudden I hear, airplane, airplane. And here comes a jet fighter on us. And it drops a bomb, shoots rockets, and strays us with 20 millimeter cannon. Just that chews right through the buildings, knocks down trees. And so we dive in a little ditch, jump up, run again. It comes three times. On the last time, it drops a bomb 40 yards from us, which is, should have killed us. But I was in the shrapnel over me, hit one of my guys right through the throat, into his head, and he's bleeding out. And he's dying in seconds. And Joseph, my medic I mentioned earlier, is helping me carry this guy. And then Joseph's wounded. And then the plane comes in again and it's strafing us. And I drop the dead body right behind me. I jump behind, see a ditch, but there's only room for one person. There's like more like a hole. I told my other team leader jump team member to jump in that hole. Joseph jumped behind. He's an ethnic. Joseph's not an American. He's a Karen. He jumps behind a pile of farm implements and I got nowhere to go. And I just said, God, I'm in trouble. Like a bad dream. And I drove down and it was like a, a rock, about a foot high rock. I just put my head behind that. And then the cannon came in and the cannon round hit a tree in front of me, cut it in half and went through the tree into the rock, busted up the rock, but didn't go through it. And I got a pretty good concussion and a, and a cut and contusion on my forehead. And it racked me pretty good, but it didn't kill me. And then the cannons went over us. And I looked back at the at my buddy who was bleeding and bled out by now. He was dead. Mm. And I just thought, man, I'm glad you didn't see that. And we picked his body up and drug him again. I remember thinking I'd want someone to try to get my kid's body out if they all possibly could. And we're running down the road. Plane's coming again. We're diving. It just keeps missing us. And the last time I'm dragging this body with my buddy and I look down the road and it's just wide open. There's nowhere to hide. And I said, they're going to get us the next time. They're not going to miss. They can see us. They will not miss this time with the bombs and cannon. And as soon as we hear that plane coming in on the final, it makes a dive. We're going to drop the body. We're going to run out of this line of fire and hope to hide. And then we'll come back and get the body. So we run off narrowly missed getting killed, come back. And my team, cause I'm close to vehicles has already seen us. And they drive a vehicle up, including one of our young ladies, brave as anything comes ripping up between the two planes. I run out, we throw the body in the car. They take off, almost get blown up. And the planes then circle us for an hour more bombing and strafing. And we can't even move. You're just laying there helpless, not fun. You know, terror is not fun. It's not exciting. It's not cool. It just absolutely have no power to stop it. I'm just playing. Wow, God, I lived through that. Mm. And then, you know, the next day, and then we had to go. And then after that, the planes left. They ran out of fuel. We went and helped other people escape. And I remember we went out in this open area, and the commander goes, you're coming to get us? I said, yeah, man. He goes, you could die here. I said, well, then I'll die with you because we're the same. We're a family. And, you know, when you're scared and you ask God if you're supposed to be there and he says yes, then ask him for love. Because for love, you do anything. You're not going to feel brave, but it's for love. And you'll do things you can't do without it. And we got everybody out. And then just a few days later, this beautiful, sweet lady got killed. For the first time in my life, I didn't want to go to the front again. I've never had that. I've been doing this 29 years, 25 years as FBR before that, and then nine years as Special Forces officer. I was done. I was done. And I just thought, I don't want to be in the Freedom Rangers anymore. I don't want people dying next to me anymore. I've had it. I've lost over 40 of my guys. I'm just done. And now I'm going to be next. And then I thought, I have three options. I'm just going to quit this thing now, or 
I'm just going to stop doing humanitarian work. I'm going to kill as many Burma soldiers as we can. That's it. We're just going to kill them. Because there's no way to stop these guys that kill them. Or third option, I'm just going to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And so I lay there that night, and I just said, I'm going to pick the third one. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because if you want me to do anything good, you're going to have to help me. I'm done. I have nothing left in me. Help me. And you know, Brian, I, I cried. I, I can cry right now. I cried for the loss of my friends. Bleeding out right next to me. Beautiful young lady. And God just supernaturally gave me the strength to get up and go do it again the next day. And that's just my testimony that Jesus enables us to do things that we can't do if it's his will. And if it isn't, you don't got to do it because you can't. At some point, everybody has a breaking point, What, whether it's a sin or a physical or a mental or emotional weakness. We all have an end to what we can do. But Jesus knows that and says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to build you up again. By my power, you're going. You can keep going. And that's what I just experienced in this last mission. And so I just think, okay, God, as long as you give me the strength, I can do something. But if you don't, I'm not much. You're in an environment and you've been in this stressful environment for a long time. You struggle with PTSD? No. I, I said the closest I came to anything like that was this last mission. But something that maybe it wouldn't be PTSD, but it'd be something else. I remember in the Battle of Mosul, we did fight ISIS quite a few times, and I shot and killed some ISIS. And they shot me. None of that bothered me, really. It was I felt I was doing the best I could do. I felt I was doing what God wanted me to do. I know that sounds strange. And I prayed for the people I shot. Lord Jesus. Wait, wait, they were coming at me yelling, Allah Akbar. Well, you didn't just turn and, your other cheek, turn your other cheek and let somebody shoot you and kill you? Well, uh, uh, that's what Jesus would do, just turn the other cheek. Well. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Speak to that because, you know, the brand of Christianity that can't imagine force uh, is like having their cultural mind blown. So just describe that for people. Why, why, how is well, this different? Yeah, I will. And I, I want to say first, I don't have a policy of violence or nonviolence. My policy is, Jesus, what do you want me to do now? Help me obey you. Amen. That's really my policy because yeah. every situation is different. Look in the Bible. There's all kinds of things God has his people do. And I just tell two short stories. One time we were in Iraq and we liberated a town. I was with the Kurds. There were no Americans, but there were American airplanes. American airplanes killed a bunch of ISIS and then missed with the next go round and killed a family, the whole family, eight people dead by accident. But they're dead. And with accident or not, if your family gets killed, you're mad. And so I get there, and there's 200 Muslim men. I'm like the American. I'm there. American Army's not there. I'm there with the Kurdish military. And they look at me, and my translator says, don't go near them. They're furious. And they're going to know you're American. They'll kill you. And I, I thought, yeah, that's wise. And also, it's kind of insulting if I show up. But then I prayed, and I just felt Jesus say, you're my ambassador. What are you going to do as an ambassador? going to hide. No, I am an American. I know what happened. So I walk up. I had an AK-47 and magazines. I put them down. I had a Glock pistol. I stuffed it down the back of my pants, and I covered it with my shirt. And I walked up to my translator, who's just shaking with fear, and I said, I'm an American. I saw what happened. It was a mistake. I apologize. I promise you that pilot didn't want to kill the family. He's probably married to the kids himself. But still, it's a mistake, and I'm so sorry. I'll do anything to fix it. I'll contact my government because I do have friends in government and we'll do our best to make it up. I just want to say, I'm sorry. They just look at me stony eyed, like they want to kill me. 
And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I finally, I just prayed. I got on my knees. I raised my hands in the air and I said, I've got a pistol in the back of my pants. You can pull it out and shoot me. I will not resist. You can have my life. It's not worth eight of your lives. I know it's just one life. But I have no time to ask my wife and kids for permission to give my life, but I give it to you freely. You can take it, and I mean it. That's the best I can do. It's all I can give you. And I just closed my eyes and thought, okay, God, they can kill me. I will not resist. And all of a sudden, I felt these arms around me, and I looked up. as It was the brother that had survived. Big dude. He lifted me up, hugged me, and said, we don't hate you. We won't kill you. He started crying. I started crying. And the whole group started crying. And... We built a playground later in honor of all those kids. And because of a great general named, named Steve Gilland, who was operational commander at that time, he made sure there, there was a payment made, you know, reparation to this family and the State Department did as well, which is amazing. Very fast. Apology and payment. And we gave money, too. That mm-hmm. didn't bring the people back. Mm-hmm. But that's the best you can do. So yeah. I just told that story. Say, you don't know what God's going to have you do. I've had many cases where I was ready to fight and God felt God just say, no, don't fight. Just take it. But I've had other cases like I was out in the street with the Rocky Army and I was sitting with a lieutenant. ISIS comes whipping around the corner, three of them. They shoot the lieutenant six times. He's on his back. They shoot me in the arm. And I, I had like no time. I remember I had an AK-47. I just raised it up and said, God help me. I thought, I'm done. They're already shooting. I'm done. And I shot the first guy, and I'm still alive. I, oh, unbelievable. I turned and shot the next guy and the next guy. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not a super shot. This wasn't one bullet each. I shot like six rounds each. So I'm no perfect expert. But I lived through it. And I thought, wow, God, you helped me. I don't know why, but you helped me. Help me not waste it. Don't let me waste this. And then I prayed for those guys. I knew these ISIS guys just wanted to kill and kill and kill until they're killed. And then they believe they go to heaven. I mean, they, they had no other option. And if I hadn't killed them, they would have killed me. They would have killed the guys behind me and it would have killed more and more. It would have been more and more misery until finally they died. And so I don't know the answers to these things, but I did say this prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. They're sinners. Please forgive them and take them to heaven. Now, he didn't have to answer that prayer. He didn't have to answer that at all. But that was my honest prayer. I'm not saying I'm right to pray that, but I prayed that. And I think there are times when... God does have you fight for something. You know, the things of this world are fatal, but they're not final. It's not final. God makes all the ultimate decisions in the end. But, but some things in life, I believe, are worth fighting for. And, you know, on this last mission, I had an opportunity actually to kill some Burma soldiers easily. <laughs> they didn't even see me. And I didn't have a rifle, but the guy next to me did. And I thought, I just picked that up and shoot him. And I prayed about it. And I know this sounds really weird, maybe, because <laughs> they killed my people. And I just felt it wasn't my role. Isn't that weird? It wasn't my role. I didn't do it. To me, I don't have a policy. It's just, what, God, what do you want me to do in this case? And I've had both things. I've had it on my knees. You can kill me. And I've had, no, I'm going to shoot you, man. I mean, it's, the Holy Spirit leads moment by moment. And for the listeners, I'm not claiming I'm right. I'm just telling you the truth of what I did and what I believe. And I'm just going to trust in God's mercy. Yeah, that's a good word. You're You're literally... Um, freeing people and helping people who are oppressed, the kind of oppression that you're mainly dealing with is physical oppression. But, you know, here in your homeland, we've got a lot of other people who, who are oppressed. 
and not so much physically, just spiritual oppression. What are the what are the ties that you see between the physical act of war that you're dealing with in Burma and the spiritual act of war that is everywhere, including in the serene Norman Rockwell life of the average American? Well, I like what Paul says, for our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Because under every physical battle is a spiritual battle. And I think that's the deadliest. And you know, the, the most important thing that I can do as a free Burma Ranger is share about Jesus. Because in the end, no matter what our context is, he's the only one that can forgive us of our sins, the only one that can lead me and give me meaning and purpose in my life, the only one that can defeat the powers of Satan and demons, and the only one that can take me to heaven. And so more important than food and medicine that we give out every chance we can, as God leads, we share about Jesus, whether that's with Muslims in Iraq and Syria, or spirit worshipers in Burma, or Buddhists in Thailand. So I think that's the most important thing, and I've also seen the power of Jesus to transform me. To take, I, again, you, you asked me about PTSD, and I forgot to tell that part of the story. So we fought ISIS many times, and I never hated them, though. thought they were dead wrong, and they were evil, and I'd shot them already. I mean, that, that time in the street wasn't the only time. There's another case just like that where people were pinned down by ISIS, and I just I said, God, what do I do? And, and I, I don't want to fight. I don't want to be the guy that attacks ISIS in this, in this trench system. This is not in the, in the movie, but it's in the book because the book has more stuff in it. But I don't want to be the guy to go in there because they're going to kill me. And then second, as a missionary, I'll lose all my funding, man. <laughs> People think I'm crazy. I, I, can't, I can't do this. And then third, it's not my job. It's their job. I want them to do their job. And then plus, I might mess them up if I you know, jump in this thing. And fourth, I'm going to get killed. And then I said, but God, you know I like to fight. And so I know that's part of it too. So I'm just putting this all up in your altar. I'm saying, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. And I really kind of thought the answer would be just kind of hold your, hold your position, you know? And I felt God say, do your best. Do your best. I thought, well, I'm an infantry officer. I know how to clear a trench. My best is go, go after them. So I went one by one by one. That's not normal missionary work. I know that. But I remember when, when those guys were dead, I prayed for each one. And... And the, the Kurds at first were really mad at me. These guys raped all these women. They boiled these women alive because this has just happened. They're the most evil people. They tried to kill us. And now you're going to pray for them? I said, hey, man, they're human. They were brave. That's sure. And they were committed not to God but to evil. But they're just human. They made a mistake, and they're done. And I'm, I'm a human too. And then when I got done praying for them, I closed their eyes and you know, tried to dress the bodies up like I'd want someone to take care of anyone I loved. And they said, you know, you're right. We're just human. Well, all this to this point, I didn't hate ISIS. But one day later in the, bat later in the battle, about three months after that event, they ISIS killed this little kid that was a friend of mine. And that was it, man. I just snapped. And I thought, okay, justice. I'm going to go after ISIS. I'm going to do my humanitarian work. But now I'm not going to sometimes fight. I'm going to fight him every day. Not because I'm a superhero, but because it just, I can't take it anymore. It's like my kid guy just got killed. And I asked God the next morning the truth of what happened, and I opened the Bible three times to the same verse in different places, which is this, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And suddenly I realized what I was calling justice was not justice, it was revenge, because it was all about hate. Because the difference between revenge and justice 
is justice requires love. And I didn't love these people. I hated them. And I realized that's wrong and that's a sin. And I just said, Jesus, forgive me of my hate and wanting to take revenge. I give it up. And it was like a 2,000 pound weight left my shoulder. And what was strange about that was I didn't know I was carrying it. You know, most of the sins I do, and I, I, I do a lot of sin and thought. <laughs> I know what I'm doing wrong. I know really right away I know what I'm doing wrong. Or later my wife will tell me, or our friends will tell me, or someone will tell me, right? I had no idea I was carrying this weight. That's, that's really dangerous. And Jesus took it from me. And I went into battle, actually, with the Iraqi army that day. And I thought, I don't have to kill anybody. I don't have to be anything but ambassador for Jesus. And if I have to fight, I'll fight. But I don't have to do it. I don't have to go after these guys. And I don't hate them. That was not a philosophical or psychological exercise. That was the power of Jesus. That when I confessed my sin of wanting revenge, he took it from me. He just took it. And so I thought, you know, if I hadn't have prayed that prayer, if I had just gone out to do quote-unquote justice, that would have slowly but surely, I think, warped me. And who knows who I would have hated next? Maybe myself after a long enough time. I don't know, but I would have been in Satan's world. And so I think for me, that's the kind of illness I would have had without Jesus helping. And I need that every day. It's not just then, it's now. And then, you know, recently after all these attacks and I lost more of my team members and we just like this brutal crushing and all these people we'd help had to flee and we're there helping them flee, just seemed so hopeless. I just like, man, I'm done. And I just said that to Jesus and he let, helped me start again. I can't describe how he did it. He just did it. And I'm like, okay, I can go again. That's a miracle. David, this has been fantastic. If um, Just give an advertisement for yourself or for your organization. If someone wants to find out more or visit or sign up or give or inform themselves, how do they do that? Well, first pray, and then God's going to guide you. That's the best thing. And then second, we have a website, freebermarangers.org. Again, I wrote this book called Do This for Love, and that tells you a lot. And then there's a book called Free Burma Rangers. You can get it on, I mean, a movie, Free Burma Rangers, you can get it on Amazon. It's a documentary. And those three things, our website or the book or the movie, you can find out. And then if you feel God lead, you can contact us and pray for us or give something if God leads you that way or come volunteer or visit. But God will tell you what to do. I'm sure of that because he, he tells us. And if he doesn't tell you what to do anything about it, don't do it. David, thank you so much, man. It has been a blessing to be with you. So, um, hey guys, I don't know. I don't know what we learned from this. Very few of us are going to be having these experiences, but I know we're probably all inspired by a man who decided to move forward, a man who decided to be godly, loving, and aggressive. Those three things actually can go together, and they have in the case of David Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers. So, let's go. Let's go free and help oppress people, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's on the other side of the world. There's a God who loves you and is running after you. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, 
Find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.